Welcome to DLN Extend. We choose topics covered by the Destination Linux Network that we think need further discussion and extend the conversation here. These shows include Destination Linux, Ask Noah, Linux for Everyone, This Week in Linux, DOS Geek, Tux Digital, and Zebedee Boss Gaming. I'm Eric, a web technologist, Linux, and open source aficionado, and all-around tech guy. And I'm Nate, a Linux, fitness, and vintage tech enthusiast with an almost almost unhealthy obsession with the OpenSUSE project. I really didn't do anything of note this week, so I'm going to pass it over to Nate, who I know has been working on a very interesting lighting project for the holidays. Nate, what have you been up to? Well, I've been building a light display, and it all runs Linux. The system is built on top of a BeagleBone Black. It's using the Falcon Pi Player, or now just called FPP, because it started out on a Pi as a Pi project and has expanded it's now just called FPP for short, and I'm using the BeagleBone Black because there's more I.O. on it. It's a little bit more of an industrialized device and so forth. And then on top of that, the hat or the, whatever the device that sits on top of that is called the Culp Lights F8B. It drives the WS2811 LED pixels. One single light has three channels in it to control red, green, and blue, and they're all programmable. If I go 300 lights, 300 bulbs, so... 900 channels, but 300 lights. I only have a voltage drop of about 4 volts. If I go 400 lights, I have a 9-volt drop in voltage at the end of the end of the chain, and so that's just not going to work. So that's to drive my pixel lights. Then I have a, uh, a pixel-to-AC 9 board that drives additional strands of, like, the traditional Christmas lights, you know, what you can buy over at, you know, the big box store or whatever, wherever you want to buy your Christmas lights. Well, that also had a power supply to drive these pixel lights, and I put all that in a waterproof enclosure, and talking to you, I decided I'd go wireless instead. So I just kind of have that hodgepodge in the box now. And then to program these lights is a system called X-Lights. It's a free and open source project. It's, uh, it's multi-platform. So there's a Linux, a Mac, and a Windows build for it. And I have not learned how to use that software yet. I've just started playing with it. I was looking at a tutorial right before we started talking. But the, the plan is Christmas, they're going to be multicolored. You know, have like a, have the reds, the greens, and blues, and whites. And I'm not going to have it just be static. I'll have it kind of, you know, chase, but very, very slowly. That makes any sense? It does. Yeah. yeah. So so instead of having it just be static, maybe like every 15 or 30 seconds, I'll have it just flip. And then after Christmas, so in January sometime, I'll turn it all blue and white. So it's just kind of winter and cold, the winter cold look. Because, you know... I don't live in Florida. I live in Michigan where it's cold about nine months out of the year. I think it's somewhere around like 70 degrees right now. So it's a little chilly. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Grab, better grab a sweater and you buy one of those Destination Linux hoodies, you know, wear one of those around, you know, at that 70 degree weather. So you mentioned X-Lights being a FOSS project. Does it come with some like sort of, you know, here's what a solid white, solid red, solid, you know, whatever. And then you build from there. I mean, how does that work? Or is that going to be like next week's update? Uh, that'll be next week's update. For what I'm doing this year, I'm just going to assign four different channels of lights because I'm not actually doing anything crazy with it. I, I just need strands to be identified and and uh, to be able to address those strands. But they have lots of things. They have presets for things like arches and candy canes, blocks for round windows or circles and and so forth, uh, grids. You have like a, a matrix, so you can have like a, a you can actually have something behave as a screen with this. And uh, stars, a, a Christmas tree like a uh, pattern, like so the the strands go up and down the the tree or whatever. So they're all addressable, and you can do whatever color patterns and craziness you want. This is a 
interesting project in and of itself. And you had been, we talked about the idea of you creating some videos or maybe some tutorials on your experience and how you've done this. It just so happens that it's, you know, the Beagle Bone and that it's running open source software and it's Linux and all of that. But the idea that just the custom lighting, and I know a lot of people put a tremendous amount of effort into their lighting setups for the holidays. And especially if you do it on a year to year basis, you kind of look for what can I do differently? What can I do new? And you're building a system that is something you'll probably expand on as you go, but ultimately it's programmable and customizable. So you can reuse this, this gear and this, this setup and do different lighting next year or a different theme or different, like the idea of that is so amazing and appealing. I have a friend who every year he does a pretty elaborate production. I think it goes back to 2015 or 16. I know at least 16, maybe even earlier, but he does it to to music. So X Lights allows you to to actually create sequences and have things change to the music and you can actually do, you know, edit scenes based on the music. And it's very cool to see. It's, it's been very cool watching his progression over the years. And he kind of he pushed me this year into actually just go ahead and just doing it. I was just going to add a few more lights and use some some simple controllers. And he said, "Well, why are you going to do that? Those are not gonna, those lights you want to buy. They're not going to last because you buy the these pixel lights and they will last you years and years. Because they're they're made well. They're waterproof. They're designed to be just outdoors. Yeah, yeah outdoor environments. To be outdoors right. continuously. Continuously. Right. right. Exactly. Also, if one of them does have a problem, you can splice in another light, and that's not a that's not a problem at all. So. I got about 2,000 lights I'm working with, and I'm not going to use them all, I don't think, this year, but I'm going to replace a lot of the multicolor lights that I'd used last year. But I will be sure to share videos and pictures and such when it's all up and operational. I'm, I'm really excited. The big part of like the, the building of this was figuring out how I can use my existing technology and just step it up with this new technology, but not losing anything that I had previously. And that, that's really what, what, uh, what drove a lot of this project. This week in the Destination Linux Discourse Community Spotlight, we wanted to talk about Linux tax prep software. We had a bunch of people giving feedback in that thread about how they manage their taxes through different software. People brought up a lot of different options, solutions. There are web-based options and open source tools that people use. It was an interesting conversation and certainly one of those more practical concerns of how do you deal with this? And uh, Nate, I think you had some thoughts on, or at least your process, like what do you do on Linux for your tax prep? I've been using TurboTax since about 2002, so, so since before I even jumped into the Linux world. And when I got into Linux, I, that's when I purchased uh, the CodeWeaver's Crossover Linux, called Crossover Office at the time. Every year since then, I've been using TurboTax. And I, I can't remember what year it was. I think it was maybe 2005 or six. It became impossible to use in Linux. Like I, I got really good at playing with DLLs and finding additional libraries and, and different uh, runtimes, whatever, finding the appropriate runtimes to make them work. Last year, I got close to actually using it in Linux, but I couldn't get network to work properly in CodeWeavers. So I've been using a, a Windows VM to do tax preparation. I'll still get the TurboTax since I have all that historical data. It pulls all that stuff in. It's not a whole lot of work then just to input this year's information and then I can spit it out and be done with it. But I, I've really been hoping, been wanting something more than that with all that extra work being put into wine, you know, by the Code Weavers company, I'm hoping that there's there's going to be some uh, 
the more like this coming year, I'll be able to just use TurboTax directly on Linux through Wine. I don't have a whole lot of hope, but I'm I'm going to give it a whirl again. What do you do for tax preparation? Well, I have a pretty complicated tax profile, whatever you want to call it, where I have my own business, my wife has her own business, and then we have filing jointly as a couple. As a married couple, we also have our daughter as a dependent. So it's a pretty complicated setup, and we've grown well beyond self-tax prep. And so we've been using an accountant for many years now. But independently for our businesses, we have to use accounting software to manage our the fiscal part of the businesses. She uses QuickBooks. I used QuickBooks online for a while, so I made the transition from the desktop version to the online version. It didn't have all the features of the desktop version, but I didn't need any of the payroll or the inventory stuff. Like there's there's more stuff you get in the pro version on the desktop. Maybe that's different now. It's been a couple of years since I've used it. I found a, a different option. I actually use Zoho Books. Uh, Zoho is a is a company that provides a lot of alternative options to things like they have a an excellent you know mail option and alternative to like Google Docs. And so anyway, they have a books, which is their accounting software. And honestly, I, I think it's better than QuickBooks Online was. Something that you mentioned that I completely agree with. And one of the reasons that we use an accountant is the tax codes change enough between tax seasons that no normal human being can keep up with all of it. So the reason you use TurboTax or Quicken or, or these pieces of software is that you hope that what they're doing is giving you all of the guidance that you need to make the right decisions and report the right things. Given the complexity of what we do, I don't have the confidence that the software is going to do that. And this is an example of where it's worth it to me to pay a professional, someone that I trust that I've worked with for many years now, to have reviewed and done the homework and know what the appropriate choices are to you know minimize your tax liability, to offset your earnings, to get the best possible refund. Now, when you use something like TurboTax, I'm assuming it's sort of a wizard type thing where you're kind of just entering the data and it's kind of talking you through. I mean, does it, does it really help you? Does it guide you through that process in a way that you feel confident at the end of that, that what it spits out is what you want to hand back to the government? It does. And that's why I like using it. It steps me through and then it does these air checks to make sure I haven't made any mistakes or checks to see if I missed anything and so forth, which invariably I, I seem to have missed something even though I walk through the through it step by step. But it's a really nice procedural, a little bite at a time. And so it's not overwhelming to go through your taxes. And I, I buy the, uh, I used to have rental property. So I've, I've actually used some of those higher level or more complex tax preparation sections. And so they're very important to have that. And I still use it also for other deductions because I, you know, being in the military and everything else, so there's things I can deduct over there as well. It's featureful enough that it'll, it'll satisfy all my little tax edge cases. It's not super complicated, like my, my personal taxes now, but it's enough that, um, that it can take care of all that for me. And actually I did have the, the business taxes done by an accountant and I will have to one more time, but I almost want to get away from using an accountant, but I don't, I don't have a very complex taxes now. Everything is very, you know, very simple. I just have a job or I, or I should say I have two jobs that pay me and then, you know, donations. But from this point forward, getting my taxes done should be pretty simple with TurboTax, but I don't, I'm just so used to using it. I'd have to have a really compelling reason to use an accountant when you know, I, I spend 50 or 60 bucks for the software as opposed to, you know, an accountant's around what, two to $300. And I, I just rather do it myself because I'm a DIY kind of guy. 
I just happened to check on CodeWeaver's site for crossover and just kind of look at the compatibility so you can search for what runs and then there's a rating basically just like WineHQ. TurboTax, yeah, I mean, it's it's not good. Uh, I don't see anything current or that there are great ratings, but I do notice that Quicken has all the way up through as recently as two months ago, a five-star rating for uh, Quicken 2019. That I believe is, is a supported application. And if you look at those TurboTax ratings, you'll see my name attached to a lot of them. <laughs> This week on Ask Noah, it was all about VPNs, and he brought up an interesting subject about private internet access being purchased by Cape Technologies, who has not demonstrated themselves to be particularly consumer-friendly or privacy-friendly with some of their other decisions and actions in the past in order to assuage the fears of people who are using private internet access who might see that as a negative thing. Crystal from the private internet access team wrote a blog post that explained why we shouldn't worry about it and the thinking behind the acquisition and how this transition won't impact any of the fundamental privacy focus of private internet access and basically doing everything that she can to assure people that this isn't going to be a problem and that they expect to continue seeing the same type of proven track record which private internet access has had over the years. I don't disagree with Noah. I don't disagree that they've, they haven't done anything to this point that should make people afraid that we're aware of. But again, what we find in a lot of these cases is you're not going to know for a while. They could make a change today to their logging policies, to their marketing policies, to their user data capture policies. There, there are lots of things they could change that we wouldn't know about. Not trying to be the boy who cried wolf here. It just always concerns me that when a larger corporation buys a company and there's some sort of agreement in place that we're just going to keep going like it's like nothing's changed, something's going to change. Something's have to change. It's just part of being acquired by another company. So I've never heard of Cape Technologies before this acquisition. And so I had to do a little homework and, and learn about them. It looks like they are mostly in the European or Middle East as far as where they, they do business. You know, and even, even doing some searching online, I didn't see a whole lot of bad news stories about them. So what makes you distrust Cape Technologies? Well, the reason you didn't find any information on Cape Technologies and any of these issues is because in 2018, the company renamed itself to Cape Technologies. It was formerly known as Crossrider. The company was focused on developing advertising apps, and some of those apps were questionable and actually considered malware by Malwarebytes because they would, in an effort to monetize the software, they would infect end users. It was sort of one of those things where it was a payload that was delivered as part of the installer for something else. And they would set up things that would basically hijack browsers and, and you know, adware. Basically the exact opposite of the type of stuff that you would expect from a company that's handling VPNs. So they lost their market because of changes in the way that Google search and different things and ad networks and some of the evolution of that technology. And they pivoted more towards the security side of things and have since sort of given up doing the ad services and ad networks and the things that they had been doing in the past. But because of that baggage and the negativity around it, they decided to rename the company to Cape Technologies in 2018. And now they have purchased several other 
VPN companies as well and are trying to reposition themselves as a security company instead of this former uh, company. But I do have to wonder if those people who were willing to do those things are also there and, and how seriously they take privacy. And again, is private internet access able to maintain their independence and be able to continue to operate the same way they have? Recently, IBM acquired Red Hat, and a lot of the fear has been that IBM would change Red Hat, but we've been seeing that there's potentially there is a change in IBM's culture because of Red Hat. Do you think it's possible that private internet access could change the culture in the Cape, in Cape Technologies? I think especially if there was a strong marketing message around the way that private internet access conducts themselves and the way that they've been able to endear themselves to their customer base because of that behavior. If by extension of being part of CAPE somehow bring that credibility, then yeah, certainly. Yeah, I guess wait and see. This week on This Week in Linux, Michael talked about IP Fire 2.23 Core 137 was released. I'm a big fan of IP Fire, so this did interest me greatly. Eric, I'm sure you've heard of PFSense. I have, and I, uh, so I'm vaguely aware of IP Fire. It's not something I've used personally, but I know it's, it's something that you have used, so I was curious to get your feedback on this. About a year ago, I was looking for some sort of a solution or something to do with my 32-bit hardware stack of, of machines, and I, I really wanted to have a, a PFSense box. I couldn't use PFSense because it only runs in 64-bit and even uses some security features that are only in the 64-bit architectures. So I tried uh, OPN Sense, but I couldn't get that to install. And then I stumbled upon IP Fire, and it was Linux based as opposed to BSD based. I'm like, well, that's a win for me because I, I happen to like, you know, the the Penguin. So I I installed that, installed very easily. I I, I did a little write up on my cubiclenate.com site, and I've been running IP Fire since. Now, it runs very well. It has a, a a real nice interface. I will say it's not quite as good as the PF Sense. It just doesn't feel quite as good. But it is very, it is good. Uh, it does feel a little older. I think PFSense has done a little bit more as far as the, the web UI is concerned. But I actually just installed the updates uh, about the time that Michael recorded. And I'm at a, a core update 138, but uh, still the same version 2.23. And I'm very happy with the performance on it. For people who don't know what PFSense or OPN Sense or IP Fire is, it is a, a firewall router system, an edge device that you put on your network. So for me, in my case, instead of using the Linksys-based router firewall system, I'm using an Intel-based Pentium machine. In my case, you can use whatever whatever you want. As long as you have two network interfaces, you have one side that faces the internet, the other side that faces your internal LAN, and that can be your edge device that handles your traffic coming in and out of your home. And in my case, I, I wanted something that was a little bit more robust than than what the uh, DDWRT on a Linksys router can handle. It has a lot of features, a lot of rules you can put in the firewall as far as what to block, intrusion prevention, geo IP block if you're having issues with with someone trying you know attacking your network from a from a specific area. The uh, it has a lot of a lot of really neat services. You know, it's just built into it. IPsec, OpenVPN. Dynamic DNS. So if you want to be able to access your stuff using, you know, uh, some sort of dynamic DNS service, you can do that as well. I'm not using that right now. I'm just using the the, the things that I've personally customized. It was just the DHCP configuration. So I, I set some static leases on my network, like the printer, uh, a couple of other devices, and everything else. And I can see what's actually connected and what has expired as far as leases are concerned within my in my home network. 
so it's fun to see. I can, you know, you know, deactivate the Nintendo Wii U, you know, stuff like that. It's it's kind of fun. But I've been very happy with it. And I'm I'm really excited to see that this project is is progressing, is continuing, you know, is continuing to be a you know, something that people are using. And it's nice to see that it, it made the news on on This Week in Linux. One of the things I love about This Week in Linux, Michael does a very good job of finding stories that I don't see publicized elsewhere. Right. Since I've been a fan of that show and listening to it, it's always been one of the strengths to me is that he will find these projects that, not that I'm necessarily not aware of or that I've never heard of, that I just haven't thought of in a long time. And he'll call to light that, hey, there's something new here that's interesting. It's one of the things I appreciate about that show and always have. And again, here's an example where now I'm thinking about it. So I, I'm probably going to do a little more homework on this and see where I end up. But I guess thanks to Michael for planting the seed. Yeah, I totally agree that Michael does a great job of highlighting a lot of different projects that maybe that don't get the, the amount of buzz and, and chatter that they should get. And it's nice to see that he's he's hitting things like IP Fire. And I'll take that as a segue to talk about Brave 1.0 being released. I've not used Brave. I should say, no, I've used Brave quite a while ago, and I didn't really enjoy using it. So maybe it's worth checking out again. But I'm not sure how I feel about the Brave browser. I mean, I like that it's blocking advertising, and I like that it's maybe another way to support people who are content creators on the internet, but I'm not sure how much I like it. What What are your thoughts on the on Brave? They have changed it enough from the default Chrome experience and have built in some privacy tools. So I will give them credit for a good out-of-the-box experience for just the general user. If you are using Chrome and want an alternative, I do think that Brave is a good alternative for just the general user because you've got all of the Chrome features without any of the Google stuff in there. And then they also have, like I said, the privacy tools, the no tracking and blockers and things like that. I think something that I'm a little unsure of at this point is their model of monetizing the web where they want to move away from ad trackers and the sort of status quo way that ads are served, they're providing this bat currency or bat credit and it's basic attention token. And essentially it's if you agree to watch ads that they provide that they've supposedly curated and, and whatever, and I think it's just a couple ads now and then, you earn these credits, you earn this bat. And then you're able to pass that along to creators as sort of the way to monetize their content Basically how that works is, so I recently, just last week, decided I'm going to give this a try, especially with the idea of Edge coming up and this, you know, the, another alternative potentially being there soon. I wanted to just take another look at Brave. I had used it in the past as well. I wasn't necessarily blown away by it. I mean, the things that were built in were nice, but I was already sort of doing way more than that in Firefox and it just wasn't compelling to me. I thought, hey, let's just take another look. So I used it, and yeah, it's it's Chrome in a lot of senses, or Chromium, if you want to say that. Uh, so it's rendering that way. It's using the Blink Engine. It's, I mean, it's it's it is that structure of the browser with their own sort of wrapper around it. Their UI is a little different, stuff like that. But I was really interested in this Bat program, right? The, re the Brave Rewards for creators, because I thought, well, you know, if this is a way that if people are really into this, and they say there's three hundred thousand people that are signed up into this program now. If this is something people are interested in using, well, okay, myself as a creator, is this actually an avenue that maybe people would be interested in providing that? So they offer the ability to add different channels in here and, and YouTube being one of them, 
they have a, just a generic website one. They've got Twitch, Twitter, Vimeo, Reddit, GitHub. So they've got some different options for people who are creating not only content, but code and different things to fund them. So I thought, okay, well, let me see what this program's all about. So I signed up for the creator program and it's, it's very simple. You verify your address and all that sort of normal stuff. You add your channel. So I have my YouTube channel in here. So if someone I guess, sees this in the browser, it's a way for them that they can contribute back to me as a creator. Now, the snag I run into here and the thing that I'm not quite convinced on is they're using this company called Uphold uh, for the wallet. And the wallet is there so that this bat is based on cryptocurrency. And I, I think it's basically Bitcoin. And the idea is that when someone tips you or provides you know, these bat to you, that it goes into a wallet. And the wallet is just where this is held. And Uphold is one approach to that wallet. There's apparently other ways that you can do this. But if you want to cash out those Bitcoins at some point and convert them into fiat currency, you have to go through essentially, I'm using the wrong term here, but kind of like a clearinghouse where you have to sell the Bitcoin to get the fiat currency. And because of the money laundering policies that are in place and the anti-terrorism and all the sort of stuff that has to be there now to, to stop, I guess, abuse of the system, Uphold makes you re- send a lot of very personal identifiable information, your driver's license or ID. You have to have a photo of yourself holding it. You have to believe I saw provide bank account statements like where you're actually either holding it or taking a picture of it and they want your account numbers. And it's pretty off-putting at the light end of it and and somewhat sort of uh, scary on the other side of it. I don't know Uphold. I've never heard of them. I know that these laws are in place to prevent crimes from happening. And I don't disagree that they need to be there. But for me as a creator to have to go through all of that, it's a little scary. It was way deeper and more involved than I expected it to be. And then when I started going looking for answers, I see a lot of feedback. So they have a subreddit. A lot of the team is there. So the brave team or support team, whatever are there. And the answer I saw, and this was from just a couple of weeks ago, was basically you don't have to use it, but if you again, if you want the fiat currency, if you want dollars or euros or whatever, that you kind of have to go through that. And the answer from Luke Malks, which I guess is it says brave team, he says people may have issues with that. I understand and empathize. For what it's worth, I don't verify my wallet in my browser. I would personally much rather just move the tokens around in the platform and support creators. Understand that that may not be a popular opinion. So essentially what one of the brave team is saying is that rather than cashing out the Bitcoin and taking, and I don't even know if it's necessarily cashing out, even if you, I guess, want to move the Bitcoin into another account you might have. So I, again, I'm, I am not well-versed in this. I'm just saying this is from me as an outsider coming into this environment and trying to make sense of it. What I take from that is that the brave team's kind of like, well, you know, yeah, you're going to earn some bat, but I, I, we're just, I guess there's some level of expectation that you're just going to reapply that bat. So I get bat as a creator and then maybe I use that bat to support other creators. I don't know. It just, it doesn't seem like a very well thought out system. And I feel like until they can figure out a way to make this less involved or less scary or less complicated, maybe in digging into this sort of bad currency, this alternative financial model for the web, that that's sort of the revolutionary thing that they've been pitching, you know, right? We're going to change the way the web's monetized so that it's not so sleazy and 
tracky and you know all this privacy invasion and all this stuff that people are, are have an aversion to i'm not really sure they've figured it out yet i think at least they're they're doing something maybe they don't have it figured out yet but they're at least starting they're down they're going down a path so i think that's gotta be worth something there you know i i don't know that i necessarily like it but i, I like that they're doing something they're at least providing an alternative This week, Das Geek, Ryan, put out a new video on his Pinebook in-depth review. He had done a video a while back when he first received it, saying that he was going to do a more in-depth review after he'd had a chance to actually use it. He didn't want to jump the gun. He wanted to give it a little bit of time. So I think it's been about a month or so. Nate, what did you, uh, what did you think of that? I thought it was a really great review. He actually used it. He took it on the road with him. He let his kids launch it across the room. Well, maybe not let. That's probably not the right word. But it did launch across the room and it has held up to you know his using it. That's only been, what, two weeks or so? But it's really nice to see that after using it and doing things with it, he has he's still very positive about it. The only real complaint he has were about the speakers being tinning on the underside of it, which isn't very good if you have it you know sitting on your lap or whatever, if you don't have it reflecting up. To me, that's not a big Let's deal. Let's just say on a $200 piece of hardware, if they're going to skimp anywhere, I'm sure that you can hear the sound, which would probably be good enough. But on a super portable, ultra light, thin device like this, even in the best of cases, you're probably not going to get the greatest sound quality. So I just oh, think, sure. you know, $200 they had to spend. Mm, maybe the speakers was the right decision. Yeah, I mean, the speakers and the webcam, those are two places I guess you can skimp out on and it's not going to be the end of the world. I mean, how often do you really video conference or are you going to jam out on a $200 laptop and expect some sort of awesome audio fidelity? I, I don't think, I think that's an unreasonable expectation. But what it did say to me was he's very happy about the purchase and it meets his needs for a laptop of that class of that size. And that was really positive from my perspective to hear. I like good news stories. You know, there's always negative stories out there. I get excited when there's really good news technology stories. And it's something that's within my grasp and something that I, I've been seeking out as well. And so it's really neat to see that this has you know, not only been hyped up with a lot of excitement, but it has been delivered and is meeting expectations. And that's a great news story. I don't really have a need for one at this time, but it's definitely now going to sit out there on my list of, hey, if I have a need for this, the device to get. Also, the fact that it's Pine, it's based on the same as our Pine 64. It's again, another target for developers to hit. They can hit the, the single board computers and they can hit this laptop with the same architecture. And that to me is a fantastic news story that in and of itself. We'd like to continue the discussion with you on Telegram, in Discourse, Mumble, or Discord. Visit the DLN website for information on how to connect to the social channels and also on shows and creators at destinationlinux.network. And for more information on where to find us, me personally, I like to hang out on the DLN Discourse server. And my information is all at destinationlinux.network under the creators section. Just look for me and you'll see all of my links for social media and ways to get in touch with me. You can find more information on me at cubiclenate.com, links to my regular written blatherings and other nonsense. But you can also find me on the Discourse as well, and you can hit me up in Telegram or Discord. As always, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode of DLN Extend. And until then, have a great week, everyone. See us. Whatever. Mm-hmm.